Good morning. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be uh, starting a new series on the book of Ephesians. And today we're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to give you a little background about the book. Uh, and then I'm going to introduce four concepts that I think will be helpful for us as we think about this book and um, look at uh, the content of it. So in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Translation. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Uh, the book of Ephesians uh, was written around 61 AD. If memory serves me right, we we think Paul was killed around uh, 64 AD during a great persecution uh, in while he was in Rome. Uh, so this letter is really sort of towards the end of his life. It's one of the prison epistles, meaning Paul wrote this from prison. Uh, the the church in Ephesus was started, um, and and Paul wasn't exactly the first person to do any ministry or evangelism in Ephesus when he got there. He found some people who had been more or less half evangelized, and then he sort of completed the job. And the um, the church grew and grew, and it got to the point that it really changed the city and the city's uh, sort of the the establishment, the uh, the the powers that be, the economic powers uh, that were there uh, in the form of uh, sort of it, it was all centered around ritual. Uh, paganism and worship of the goddess Artemis. Uh, and when people started repenting and, and converting away from Artemis worship and from paganism to Christianity and not buying idols anymore uh, and not participating in temple worship so much, um, it really started to affect the local economy and some people got pretty up in arms about it. Uh, Paul's life was uh, very much threatened there. He had to, to leave. Um, but the church was that influential in uh, the city of Ephesus. Now, you would think with such zeal that the church in Ephesus would be so solid that nothing could ever um, make it sort of wane in its power, but it did. Uh, in fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, the apostle John, well, actually the Lord Jesus himself saying through the apostle John to, uh, to the church in Ephesus, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, and I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Uh, and so, I believe they even said they'd lost their first love. And so you can see that even even if people are very zealous, uh, their their zeal can start to wane over time. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower when Jesus talks about um, uh, people with shallow soil, the seed in shallow soil, that they spring up quickly, but um, because they have such shallow root, then they, they die out pretty uh, easily when the sun comes out and withers them. Uh, and that may have been a little bit of the story of the church in Ephesus. And, and now John the Apostle wrote um, though that, that word from the Lord in the book of Revelation some 30 years after Paul uh, is writing this. But maybe even in Paul's day there was some, um, some inkling that that's what they were going to be like. And so that he wrote this 
uh, letter to them. I, I guess I can't prove that, but um, I just wonder if that's sort of how it came about. Now, this letter is very different from, say, the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Galatian churches in that there wasn't, there's, it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be any very specific glaring problem in this church. They don't seem to have a, a big doctrinal problem like the Galatians had. They didn't seem to have a big moral problem like the Corinthians had. Uh, and so you, you, maybe I can sort of see that these are people who are just kind of uh, ho-hum about things. Maybe they, they just say, yeah, yeah, sure, I believe. Yeah, yeah, sure, and everything's fine. But their zeal has gone. They don't really, maybe they're not really grasping onto the the kingdom purposes and the passion for uh, advancing the kingdom. I'm not, I'm not really sure, and I guess I don't want to accuse them of things I'm not sure about. But um, obviously Paul felt uh, a great need to write to them, uh, and maybe some of it was just affection, just just a restating of the gospel, because that's kind of what this is at the very beginning, is just sort of a restating of the gospel and some of the most Im- uh, important ideas, uh, um, sort of knowledge about the gospel. And then the later half of the book, it's behavior. And now people, when people look at Paul's letters, um, there, there's it often follows a pattern of theology up front, behavior or, or practical matters of Christian living in the back. And we often um, go to the the back part of his letters because that's the stuff that's more uh, immediately applicable to our lives. It's more obvious. Uh, um, when a person becomes a Christian, they want to know, so, okay, so what should, I, what should I do? What should I do? And um, the, the second half of many of Paul's letters tell you the what you should do. Um, but the beginning part is how you should be and how you should think. Uh, and people sort of gloss over those as kind of like, yeah, 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 I, I get it, I get it. Now what am I supposed to do? Um, but I would say that the thing that affects how we behave mostly is is the way we think. And so we need to um, examine the how we think before the, the how we behave. And so that first, this first half of the book of Ephesians, I, I hope that we can get to a point where we say, yeah, okay, now I get it. Now I see how I need to have a shift in my thinking, a, a different way of understanding, a different way of believing, and that will affect my behavior. If you think differently, you'll behave differently. Uh, so many things in my life, so many sins I have in my life that I want to repent of, the real problem is not just that I can't control my behavior. That is the problem, a problem, but it's that I don't see my behavior as being as destructive as it is or as harmful as it is or as um, um, dishonoring to God as it is. And if, if I could just shift the way I think about the sin in my life, then I'd be able to change my behavior perhaps a little bit more easily. Now, there are four concepts that I want to bring out in this, and this is all some theology. And, and what is theology? It's the study of who God is and, and, and what's going on with us in our world and everything. It's, it's the study of God, and, and it's the study of who we are with God and how we relate to God and who we are compared to God. Um, and so there are these four concepts that I want to, to bring out. And the first one, the first one uh, is and I guess when I think of these four, what is what what is uh, what order should I should I teach them in? I think I'm going to go ahead and say shalom. There's a, there's this word shalom, and what it, it's it means peace. It's Hebrew for the word peace, um, but it's more than just peace. It's more than just um, the absence of a kerfuffle. 
um, shalom, what it really is, is it's how God created the universe to be, where, with everything in harmony with each other. Uh, the heavens and the earth in harmony, and everybody on the earth together with each other in harmony, uh, people relating to people, people relating to God, people relating to the creation, all in perfect peace and harmony instead of in combative relationships. Um, and so it's the absence of chaos, it's the absence of sin, it's the absence of um, selfishness, uh, and it's it's knowing God and having a perfect, harmonious relationship with God. And so I want you to think just in a moment, um, for a moment, how, how would your life be differently? How would your life be different if there was no chaos in your life? How would your life be different if there were no strained relationships? How would your life be different uh, if there was nobody, affect, if, if sin didn't affect how you lived? That is shalom. And so just think about marriages. How would marriages be if husband and wife related to each other in perfect harmony, in perfect love, no selfishness, no skepticism of each other, no suspicion of each other? How about uh, your work life? How about your school life? How about cross-cultural relationships? How about ambition in life? All of that remove the sin and the evil from all of that, that's what shalom is. Uh, and it's very, even very hard to imagine that um, because uh, sin is such a big part of each of our lives that could we even imagine um, relationships or, or situations where evil didn't exist in it? It, it would just be, it, it is hard to, to, to sort of comprehend. But that's what God created the universe to be, and that's what he's moving the universe toward. Um, but the second concept, this other concept, and I've talked about it already, is sin. So sin is what's ruining the shalom. Sin is what's ruining all the good things. The way that God created the universe to be, it's all now ruined by sin. It's not ruined beyond God's ability to repair. It's ruined beyond our ability to repair it, but it's not ruined beyond God's ability to repair it, but it is ruined. Um, most of the time, people, when they think about sin, they think of it as just a, a list of very fun things that we're not allowed to do, uh, but that's not what it is at all. That's not what it is at all. Uh, sin is these uh, I guess in our day-to-day -day life, it's these destructive things that we do, and we, we have to see them as destructive. Um, people would might think of, you know, okay, so Christians don't believe you can have sex before marriage. Well, how much, uh, you know, how, what a drag that is. Except that even most single people who are out there who are promiscuous, when, you, when they think about why they're single or why... Uh, their relationships are sort of exist with such skepticism and suspicion why they're unable to have some relationships uh, isn't it because they everybody knows that everybody's trying to take advantage of each other in that way um, so it's just a it's just a strange thing for us to think that um, sin is all these fun things I mean just think about drugs and alcohol. Uh, ask somebody who's really addicted, is it fun? And they'll say, yeah, it's fun, except I was killing myself. It's fun, except I was killing myself. And I guess that's the, the way our sinful nature sort of can relate to, 
to sin. It's, it is these fun things, these things we really want to do, these really thrilling things that we want to do, except that we know and deep in our hearts that they're killing us and that they're destroying our relationships with each other, and they certainly are destroying our relationships with God. So it's the opposite of shalom. Even if, even if it's fun, it brings chaos. Even if it's fun, it brings destruction. Uh, destruction to the heart, the soul, the body, the mind. Um, it, it's, and, and it's awful. And, the, and the, the end of it all is really just awful. Um, but I, I want to come back and talk about how it destroys our relationship with God. Um, you think back to the Garden of Eden. You think back to Adam and Eve. And here they are confronted with this temptation. And what was the temptation? The temptation was, eat the fruit, it'll make you wise. Eat the fruit, it'll make you wise. Now, God had made them wise. God had made them smart. Uh, they, they weren't numbskulls. Um, but they were promised, uh, erroneously, and it was a lie, but they were promised that they would know more and that they would be even maybe smarter than God or equal with God. And so... In the very and they and they they bought the lie they believed it, and uh, they ate the apple and then they found out that it, that they had been duped. But in all of this, it was this temptation to not trust God, and we so we don't trust God and we don't trust each other, and now we can't even trust ourselves. Uh, maybe above all, we can't trust ourselves, and so the problem of sin is that um, God is good, God is wise. God tells us how to live, but we don't trust his, his, his opinion of things. We don't trust that his word is, is, is law, is gospel, is good, it will help us thrive. We think, no, no, God, I think you're wrong about that. Um, you know, people would look at the Bible and say, isn't that silly? They ate fruit. How, how could eating fruit be, be so bad? Uh, but the truth is it wasn't about the fruit. It wasn't about the fruit. It was about the not trusting. The sin is the not trusting. The, the action that you take when you don't trust God, that's what that is. And so since we don't trust God, we don't live his way, and destruction comes into our lives. And he's angry about it. He's very angry about it. Uh, and he's angry enough to judge us over it. Um, but it wasn't his idea. It wasn't his desire. He wanted us to trust him. We didn't trust him. And now we still don't trust him. And that is the essence of sin, the problem of sin. And so the, uh, you know, for salvation, what is the, what is the fix? If, if you don't trust God, what is the, the fix for, for, for sin? It is to start having faith in God, to start trusting God, to start looking at God and saying, God, I don't understand why you don't want me to do this or why you do want me to do this, um, but I'm going to trust you. Instead of, instead of not trusting you, I want to start trusting you, and then I'm going to see how it works out. And I think you'll see that it always works out better when you trust God and when you obey God, even when you don't understand. Adam and Eve did not understand what they were doing when they sinned the first time. And you may not understand when you're living in obedience. You may, you know, a new Christian or somebody whose mind is completely um, veiled and fogged over by sin, if you don't... don't uh, See how obedience, how God, you know, God wants me to be obedient and do this. I have no idea why. Why would I do that? Why? I don't understand. But if you take that step in obedience, then you'll find, you'll find something out. You'll learn something. You'll, you'll finally know something um, about, about God and about yourself. 
And so for, for salvation, he says uh, salvation is by faith. It, it's by the, the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but our, what is our part in it? Our part in it is to, to believe and to have faith. And he gives us that faith. Uh, he opens our eyes so that we can believe, and then we step forward in faith and begin following him, begin trusting him. And that all just sort of is the beginning of the undoing of the problem of sin where we distrusted. So what's the, the the essence of sin is lack of trust, and so what's the essence of salvation? Trusting, having faith, believing. And it all happens. It can only happen by God's grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, as it says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. By grace you have been saved. Now what is grace? Uh, and I think we all have an understanding of, of grace from our own language, but uh, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about grace, it's, it's something a little bit different. Uh, and there are three sort of definitions that I see for the word grace when I see it in the Bible, and, then, and also the way that Christians use it. Um, grace uh, can mean mercy. God's grace, we are saved by God's grace, so we're saved by His mercy. It also is often used to be uh, to mean God's intervention by His grace, by His intervention. We have been saved. Um, God is gracious. God intervenes. So it's His mercy and it's His intervention. By the uh, but for the grace of God go I. That's the that's the um, a common phrase that we use in English. And what it means is, but for the grace, but for the intervention of God, I would be in the same predicament as this other person. They didn't experience God's grace. He didn't intervene. He didn't uh, stop them from doing whatever they were doing. He did stop me from doing whatever I was doing. Uh, and, and and so it has led to their destruction, but God's grace in my life led to my um, salvation. And so it's not just mercy. It's his intervention in our lives. So we're going down the wrong path, and by his grace, he turned us on a different trajectory. Uh, and then third, it's his empowerment, him, his empowerment. Um, I often, when I pray for people, I say, may God give you grace to endure. And what I mean by that is in his mercy and in his intervention, may he give you a, a certain power to do something that you wouldn't have been able to do. Face uh, a scary situation by giving you the courage, by giving you the empowerment of, uh, of words, um, of boldness, whatever you needed to, to do something uh, that you were supposed to do. So that is the meaning of grace, uh, the way I see it in the Bible. Now, when, when God reaches out to us, we sinners in our, in our sinful predicament, um, we have offended him. And because he is gracious, because he shows mercy, um, he has offered salvation to us. And so when we come back to Paul's letter here, I, this really all does have something to do with Ephesians, I promise. Um, he says, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you what? Grace and peace. Uh, grace and peace. And in um, uh, in Greek, that's karis and irene. In Hebrew, uh, and I think that Paul, you know, he's a, he's Jewish, he, he speaks Hebrew, he reads Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, um, grace is chesed. And, it, and what chesed means is when somebody... When somebody who um, who owes you nothing gives you everything, gives you something good, and so we we deserve nothing from God, and and yet God has saved us and and uh, set aside an abundant inheritance for us. That is His grace, um, but also uh, may may God give you grace and peace. And what is peace in Hebrew? It's shalom. It's shalom. 
So hesed and shalom, hesed and shalom to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God is taking away their problem of sin. Uh, he was offended by sin, but he has offered grace and mercy uh, and and intervened in their lives. So now that they they um, they have forgiveness, and he's even given them the empowerment to live a holy Christian life by his grace. Um, and so this uh, problem of sin that took away our shalom, uh, because of God's grace, he is giving back the shalom, giving back the shalom. And, of course, Paul is not writing to the entire city. He's writing to the church there, the church. And the church is this group of people that have responded to the gospel call to come out from the world and be part of God's remnant. And that's the fourth concept I want to um, talk about is the, the, the idea of the remnant. Uh, in, in world history, in biblical history, when we look at it, uh, God calls out a people that, you know, the, the bulk of the world, the majority of the world is, is just going to hell in a handbasket. They are um, they're, uh, set aside for destruction. They're living in great disobedience. They are very pagan and very sinful. And then God calls out a small group of people who respond in faith and become part of the remnant of, of humanity that's going to, to live and survive. And the, the first great example of this in the Old Testament is Noah and his family. Literally, the rest of the world was destroyed, but the remnant of Noah's family survived by God's grace. By God's grace, he called them out. They responded in faith. They built the boat, and then they survived uh, the judgment. Um, in uh, Later in the Old Testament, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and, and they are the remnant that survived uh, when Israel was destroyed. Israel got so evil that... God sent the Babylonians to destroy them, but he didn't. They they didn't destroy everybody, and instead, a small group of people were taken back to Babylon to serve the king there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were among them. They are the remnant, and God has done amazing things through the remnant of His people. Um, I think it was um, it was Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, and I saw this a uh, a uh, quote recently where he was, and I can't give you the exact quote, but he said. Don't worry about the numbers in your church. Uh, even if it's a small church, even if it's a small group of believers that you're part of, uh, God has always done wonderful and great and mighty things through small numbers of people, through his remnant. Uh, and so uh, this group in Ephesus, now this church in Ephesus, they did have a huge impact on what happened in the city, but I still don't think that they were just an enormous church. Um, but they were uh, a people to stand up and take notice of because they had been, they had impacted culture uh, so much. And so even if it is a small church there in Ephesus, um, they're part of this remnant. They didn't, you know, not the, it wasn't the whole city that converted, but it was a, a small group of people, a significant group of people, but still a small group of people that had repented and come out. Okay. Um, now, I want to talk about these uh, things in terms of Paul's life, in terms of my life, maybe in terms of your life. Um, for Paul, he understood sin. Uh, for him, uh, sin manifested itself in, in religious zeal, uh, misdirected. How could religious zeal ever be wrong? But it was for Paul uh, because uh, it manifested itself so much in hate and violence. 
He wanted to destroy Christianity, destroy the church, destroy the the following of Jesus. And so he was very much a, a very hateful and violent person. But God's grace, God's grace intervened in his life, and he sh- and he was shown mercy, and God stopped him dead in his tracks, and changed him, changed him entirely, and then gave him the empowerment to begin living the Christian life, living a very different life from who he was. And in that way, Paul experienced shalom. He experienced shalom with God and with the people that he had been trying to destroy. He had been trying to destroy the church. Now he was part of the church, and and he was establishing churches, uh, congregations, everywhere that he went. And so Paul now loves the people he used to hate. Some some shalom was brought into his life. Not entirely, because um, there, there was now another group of people that hated him and wanted to stop him from uh, from establishing churches, but that's but he didn't hate those people even even that hate was one sided. Uh, he he loved the people that he that who were trying to destroy him after he became a Christian, uh, and he said he, he even says in Romans he would have traded his salvation for theirs. Um, that's shalom. That's shalom. That's some great stuff right there. But then Paul uh, becomes part of this remnant. Uh, he, he even kind of says he was C-sectioned out of Judaism. He was ripped from his mother's womb is what he says. And, and now he began yearning for the rest of the Jewish nation to become Christ followers as well. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so here is Paul, this small remnant here. But he was not ineffective even though he was just this one person. He was not ineffective even though he was part of a small movement, a smaller the smaller Jesus movement at the time. Uh, and in the end, um, who overthrew the Roman Empire? It was Christianity. Uh, so even small groups of people um, have can have great power uh, for change. Now for me, I, I guess I just, all I really want to say is that in my life, um, I was gravitating towards uh, sin uh, and this is when I was—I I became a Christian when I was just a kid. But I—and it, it's not like I had really just my life had been eaten up by sin. But I could see what I was gravitating toward, and that wouldn't have ended good. It, it may not have ended in in terrible, utter destruction. But I don't think it would have been as good as what it, what I've got now. And God uh, showed me grace. He had somebody. Uh, share the gospel with me, and the kid that shared the gospel with me, he wasn't even that that good of a Christian. Uh, he's had some chaos in his life, but he knew the gospel message, and he um, uh, he was a good Christian in that he was obedient. He was obedient, and he was a great evangelist to me because he un- he helped me understand the gospel enough for me to receive it. Um, and you know, I, I pray the the grace of God in his life, and he has experienced the grace of God in his life a lot too. Um, and I'm very thankful that God sent him to share the gospel with me. That was God's intervention in my life. And God has given me some, some great shalom in my life, some great harmony with him, some great harmony with other people. He called me out of whatever uh, road I was going down and whatever job I may have ended up having in that life, and he, he instead has given me a wonderful adventure uh, in my Christian life. I'm um, I don't spin my wheels on things that don't matter, at least it's not as much as I would have. Certainly, I, I do things now that probably have, have no value, but, um, but God has really given me a life that I couldn't have imagined um, without Him. 
But not everybody I know, not not everybody in my circle of friends, and maybe not even everybody in my circle of my family, um, pursue this. They don't all do this. So, I, so even in that way, I'm sort of a remnant of um, my own my own culture or my own background. Um, and the thing is, when you become part of the remnant of something, what happens is you you start to have less and less in common with the culture around you. For the people in Ephesus, after they repented of their paganism, they had very little in common with other Ephesian people. Uh, that city was so caught up in paganism, so caught up in Artemis worship, um, that after they became believers, what what place did they really even have in their own city and in their own culture? Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your life. How has sin affected you? Are you living the kind of life that gives abundant joy and stability in our unstable and angry world? Or does chaos reign in your family? How do you need God to intervene in your life? What grace do you need? What mercy do you need? What forgiveness do you need? What empowerment or what gumption do you need from God to get going in the right direction? He'll give it to you. And then let me just ask this, ask you this. How would your life look different if you weren't your own worst enemy? What if the striving you feel every day was gone? What if your house was so peaceful you couldn't wait to get home? What if there was shalom? What if there was peace, at least on your side, in every relationship around you? Your relationship with God, your relationship with your family, your relationship with your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. What would that look like? But who would you become to your family and friends if you began to live your life in a very different way than before? How would they react if you became the remnant when they remained in the majority culture? It's not always pretty being the remnant, but the end of it all is wonderful. It's enjoying an abundant life from God, knowing God, eternal life, great inheritance from Him, and a family in the body of Christ like you never could have known before without it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for all the grace to confront and forgive all of our sin and restore all the shalom that was lost. Give us, Lord, the courage to step forward and become part of the remnant. Step out of majority culture. Step out of the world. Step out of whatever we're in to become part of your group, your people, your church, your remnant, the people who are being saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And may God the Father who loves you too much to let you just keep living like you're living, bless you in His Son with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the end give you peace from the comfort of the Holy Spirit and empowerment to live the daily Christian life. Amen. You are dismissed.